You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. In season one of Learning How to See, we looked at the subject of biases, and we returned to it in season two. We tried to develop a skill for challenging our biases and our preconceived notions. We're practicing learning how to see from different perspectives, learning how to hold tensions. And that skill is very important in today's episode. One person can say, Christianity saved my life. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. And another person can say, Christianity ruined my life. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. And still another person could say, for 10 years, Christianity was the best thing, then it became the worst thing, then it became the best thing again. How can we see Christianity as being different things to different people or being different things at different times? How can we see Christianity as something in the making? Something that's not a finished product. Something that is continually being remade by each new generation of adherents. That's what we're going to explore today in learning how to see. How to see Christianity as a road we make by walking. On this final episode of season three, we will be joined by my friend, Trip Fuller. Trip is a delightful human being, as you're about to see, an incredible conversationalist and a really important theologian. For over a decade now, Trip has been bringing together many of the most brilliant theological voices from the Academy and interviewing them online through his podcast, Homebrewed Christianity, and helping their wisdom and insight become accessible to the rest of us who aren't necessarily part of the Academy. I know you're going to enjoy meeting Trip, and I hope you'll get to know him and his many other roles uh, as, as a speaker, as a thinker, as a gifted author himself, and as a convener of needed conversations about what Christianity was, is, and can be. Here is a passage from Do I Stay Christian? In this light, Christianity looks very different to me. Instead of an old, mature, fully formed, maybe even worn out religion, I see it as a religion still in its earliest infancy. And that raises a new question for me. If I leave the Christian community in conversation, Will I be abandoning an infant, speaking in terms of deep evolutionary time? I remind myself, the universe isn't in a hurry by human standards. It has been unfolding and expanding, diversifying and beautifying in its current form for 13.7 billion years. I remind myself, if we compressed the universe's whole existence into one year, our planet doesn't even form until September 11th. The first forms of life don't emerge on Earth 
until around September 30th. But no multicellular organisms evolve until December 14th. The dinosaurs rule the Earth from December 27th to 30th. And the first humans don't appear until December 31st at 11.39 p.m. Jesus comes on the scene at 11.59.56, which means that all of Christianity has existed for a mere four seconds. Four seconds. Or to frame it differently, if we say that modern humans have been around for 200,000 years, Christianity has been around for 1% of our species history. Yes, for better and for worse, as we've seen, the religion made a big splash in a relatively short time. But imagine two scenarios. First, imagine that human civilization, led by its largest living religion, destroys itself in the next century or two. Wouldn't you have to be suspicious, at least, that a species that survived for 198,000 years without Christianity could only last 2,000 years with it? That's not a great reflection on Christianity. But conversely, imagine that somehow we reverse our accelerating slide into catastrophic climate change and environmental overshoot. Then imagine that we reverse the accelerating concentration of money, power, and weapons in a tiny group of hyper-elite oligarchs. And then imagine that we manage to keep those super-rich oligarchs from using their growing cache of weapons to plunge us into a mushroom cloud of mutually assured destruction. In that light, imagine that the human race lives for another 200,000 years. Looking back from that vantage point in the 2020s, the first 2,000 years of Christian history will be to our descendants only 1% of Christian history, proportional to what the first 20 years of Christianity are to us. If you are familiar with Christian history, you already know that we know next to nothing about the first 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion, except this. It was very unlike what we call Christianity today. There were no church buildings, no denominations or celibate clergy, and really no clergy at all as we know it, no formal creeds or systematic theologies, no organs or Sunday school programs, no annual celebration of Christmas or Easter. It was a 20-year-old movement, younger to me as I write than the civil rights movement and the environmental movement, just twice as old as the Black Lives Matter movement and a bit older than the Me Too movement. So I ask myself again, why should I leave a religion in its infancy? Wouldn't that be like giving up on a baby because after 10 months, she still can't walk, talk in complete sentences, read, do basic algebra, or even poop in the potty? Wouldn't I be wiser to redouble my efforts to help this fledgling religion learn to walk, stop biting its playmates, and feed itself? Well, everyone, I'm so happy to be in this conversation with Trip Fuller. Trip, we've known each other, I think, since were you a graduate student when I 
when I met you or were you undergraduate? Oh, it's been long enough, Brian. I don't quite remember, but it was <laughs> uh, it, it was definitely early 20s at the latest. Yes. And I've said this to you, Trip, but I want to say it for other people to hear. Trip started a, a, a podcast called Homebrewed Christianity, and he has been interviewing the greatest living theologians and philosophers uh, since 2008, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Yesterday was the 14th birthday of the podcast. So. That's amazing. And so literally there are hundreds of hours of engaging conversation with the world's, I think, the world's leading theologians. And to me, this is just so significant. You know, I, I think about, uh, for Protestants will be familiar with the story of Martin Luther posting 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, which is very possibly an apocryphal story. But the idea that he used an old technology, uh, ink on paper to stick on a door, and then followed it up with a new technology of uh, the printing press, I just think that whatever kind of reformation and renaissance is happening now, uh, Tripp has done an incredible service to the whole process by... Uh, you know, by this amazing Homebrew Christianity podcast. Hey, Tripp, I wondered if you could maybe tell everybody two things about you that they might not know, one personal and one professional, anything that comes to mind. Personal? Well, I'm really, really into like a few things. And then whatever they are, I go all in and that's my personality. So like when I got into homebrewing, I started competing and wanted to win. I like J.R. Tolkien, like, the kind of person that rereads it all regularly. I love the Dodgers and uh, Lakers. And so I get the apps for the sports, but like the, <laughs> the kind of subscription where you really are just paying to watch one team, not them all. And then I listen to podcasts about them. That's my like energy on anything I'm into, which uh, leads to like, you like theology. And then you're like, so there's this re way that I can go interview people. And so I would say the professional part is, that kind of you get into something, you love it, and then you want to find other people that love it and then tell other people that this is really cool. The podcast has turned into, you know, what my vocation is after spending uh, 14 years as an academic and a podcaster. The podcasting has continued to grow. I really dig it. And I think most people that before had really big questions and things that would shake them up, you know, a hundred years ago, they're like the few people that went and had liberal arts degrees and that kind of stuff. And then they would go to seminary and all that kind of thing. Um, now, almost anyone that pays attention and asks questions has the kind of intellectual baggage and questions and stuff to wrestle with. Uh, but they, there are vocationally needing the debt and investment in uh, seminary. So, I found that my passion and care about it has led to being able to give people, you know, a an audio version of some of the stuff that happens in graduate school. It's positive because there are more and more Christians asking the kind of questions that one Sunday school class or a sermon or something doesn't answer directly. You need uh, th the space of a podcast, of our online reading groups and stuff like you've done before and uh, with me. And uh, so, I, yeah, I really like it. And the more people that can get it without a large number of student loans or the more disciples that have more available options when it goes to materializing fidelity in the world. <laughs> 
Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, as you know, in this season of learning how to see, we're talking about learning how to see Christianity, looking at Christian faith in a, a new and fresh perspective or perspectives. And um, for a lot of people, Christianity is a fully defined thing. Somebody defined it for them, a priest, a pastor, a denomination. It's this permanent thing with a deep divinely established essence that can't be tampered with. And more and more of us are are coming to realize that Christianity, like everything else in the world, is uh, something in process. It's always been changing. It's changing right now. I uh, earlier uh, read to everyone a couple of paragraphs from your beautiful book, uh, Divine Self-Investment. And I just want to read a, a sentence or two um, and invite you to uh, just riff and build on that a little bit, um, Trip, You were talking about Peter's confession uh, of Christ in the Gospels, where he says, uh, I, I believe you, you are uh, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you wrote, recognizing that the content of the confession was a work in progress for the disciples themselves can free us up to seize and celebrate our location as disciples of Christ today while expecting and even anticipating an ongoing process of growing in understanding. This means that every constructive Christological proposal can come both from a genuine faith and anticipate that continued faithfulness will lead to its deconstruction. It is always the call toward a more beautiful, true, and just Christological form. And, and you and I both know, for some people, that's really scary. They always, they, they think this thing is supposed to get codified in the right words, and then it's done forever. Uh, yeah, but that, that's not working for a lot of us, and, and we're, we're seeing it in a different way. Yeah, talk about that. I think part of the reason it's a difficult conversation to ask about, oh, what's the essence of Christianity? What is real Christianity? Uh, the moment you ask to define a tradition, um, and this is true in the same way about what does it mean to be America or a democracy, right? Like once you ask to define a tradition, you end up in this kind of circular kind of justification where you look back to the origin of the tradition and then you look to the present, and when those two keep reinterpreting itself, uh, and you can spot it in uh, different parts of the church differently. I grew up a Baptist preacher's kid, so we used biblical Christianity, right? So that's the origin. Yes. And then all the weird conclusions that only people in the 17th century and later had happened to agree with the origin, <laughs> biblical Christianity. And then your Catholic friends are no like, no, 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 let's talk about Orthodox Christianity and the ecumenical councils. And, um, and, and then they kind of guide us to reading scripture and y'all got really frisky, you Baptists, right? So there's always this, uh, others use for historic Christianity or creedal Christianity or whatever it is. I think that the reason traditions have a hard time uh, deciding what their essence is is because they're still alive. Like a living tradition has all the problems that anything alive has. <laughs> every every generation, it inherits something. 
And then it decides what's it's inheriting. What are the parts of it that are problematic? What are the questions of it that still ring? What are the symbols of it that are still alive? But then there are other responses in the past that are ugly. Just think of in America, how the church has responded around all the racial questions. There used to be a time that being the quote, biblical Christian in America meant you defended slavery and the right of slave owners because if God was so against it, then why didn't anyone speak out? And they can insert all the Bible verses, right? And now we're at a point where if you said something out loud, I'm trying to be a biblical Christian and I support chattel slavery, everyone looks at you and goes, you're wrong. And I say that because there's this tension of the origin and the present and how you justify it covers up all sorts of ideologies. And we can look at it in the past and go, that happens. But what happens when it's in the present? What are the ideologies that generations in the future will look back and say, did you hear... You hear that conversation of Brian and Tripp? Brian wrote that book, Do You I Stay Christian? You read the whole thing. There's tons of beautiful parts in it, but insert things we're blind to right now. Can you believe they didn't even notice? And just imagine what our grandkids are going to say when they look back at our consumption patterns in, in light of the ecological crisis. I already get those questions from my son who's growing where. So I say that because what we see in the gospel there in Peter's encounter, the recognition that to give oneself to Christ, to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, involves an existential orientation that you're giving yourself to this community and following this rabbi, right? But you don't know what it means. And throughout the New Testament, the disciples, and especially in the Synoptic Gospels, get the language right all the time. That's why they're disciples. You're the Christ, son of the living God. And then once the content starts to get filled in, Jesus consistently looks at them and goes, WTF? Like, what do I have to do? Right? So like Peter gets this, oh, God revealed it to you. My father told you about who I am, right? And then the moment they're on the Mount of Transfiguration and Elijah, Moses roll up and he's like, let's build booths. Let's stay here. And Jesus goes, no, we're going to Jerusalem. Pete's like, whoa, uh, Jesus, have you can, you know, they want to kill you, right? And you get the get behind me, Satan. Now, it's not at that point he missed the theological question like, oh, who is the origin of the Christian tradition, Jesus, or uh, that Jesus is Lord, or I'm his disciple. It's the content of it and the content of it to understand the way his vision of divine and beauty and love and justice had to disentangle it from God's. It involved being with Jesus all the way to the cross. I think that one of the, the gifts that is just sitting there in the image of Jesus, James and John have it differently uh, in the Gospels on the question of power, is that the Gospels go, even the people that Jesus chose and trusted get the content wrong and they discover it in being a community of practice in the way and love of Jesus. And I think that a lot of times uh, because of modernity, because of the way we justified ourselves in Christendom was to assert some authority, be it the Bible or the tradition or whatever else, because our real goal is to have the content that then we can, you know, retweet, say that that's final. And now we are, now our anxiety is gone about truth and existence. We recognize that those kinds of faith are ugly and not life-giving, but we still have this allergy to leaving beyond that kind of certainty and that kind of finality about the truth. And I think when we recognize that truth is not, especially religious truth, is not some objective statement, but a subjective engagement, right? being a disciple, uh, then it opens us up 
to both be passionately committed, recognizing uh, that whatever beautiful articulation and embodiment we do in the present, part of it being uh, kind of uh, committed to what's to come is that it will be deconstructed. It will be fallible. It will include things that later uh, the spirit will uh, wean out. And the New Testament is full of it, right? Like we're Gentiles. If, if they were good biblical Christians, uh, Peter would have won and we would have got had to get snip to join uh, <laughs> Team Jesus. And, and it wasn't that he found a Bible verse to justify eating across that line. It was the activity of the spirit of God that then demanded from Peter a new interpretation of the faith received. Jesus said, don't change the vowel marks on Torah. And then the Holy Ghost was like, well. I think a lot of us have gotten comfortable with the idea that people called it progressive revelation, that they didn't have it all figured out in such and such a year, but that we continue to learn and grow. But I think you might say part of what they got in, at one, with progressive revelation, they got the idea that it's cumulative. In other words, we keep getting it better and better and better and better. But I think part of what you're saying is more radical than that. It's saying that in a sense, we always have to have a beginner's mind. It's not that instead of our options being narrowed as we go along, because now we've got more, it's like legal precedents. We've got lawyers who've been, and, and Supreme Court decisions that have been reducing our options as we go along. You're saying, no, the very nature of truth and the very nature of an encounter with the divine is that we're always in the beginner's mind, so to speak. We, and, and those virtues of humility and curiosity are perpetually important. Am I, am I reading you right there? Yeah, I think the cumulative language is important, right? So if the primary virtue of your religious tradition is truth and things change, then it's cumulative. But let's imagine that at the very heart of it is love. Love is not something that's cumulative. It's contextual. What love looks like, perfect love in one moment, even with the same person, looks different. So you and I have been friends for a long time. There are different times. We have been friends to each other in different ways. We've shared about being parents. What loving our kids well looks really different when they're two months old and you have to change your diaper. If they were 22 and we're like, look, I love you. Um, so let me help you out. Right. Like it, and, and it's a joke there. But I, I think yes. underneath it is that we haven't taken seriously um, that the crescendo of the New Testament is God is love. That Paul's like the greatest of these is love. Then when we tell the Jesus story. And we give the invitation to be part of the body of Christ. That's because we recognize that we can so easily cloud the lens of love so that all of a sudden the image, the ideal looks like us. Jesus is there to deconstruct the ways we project ourselves onto the divine and then go, oh, I'm just doing uh, the loving thing. But that's, it does involve a transition, I think, from seeing uh, the truth as something that's cumulative, where you're building and figuring out things and then finding the place where it crescendos, usually corresponding to you, right? So um, uh, Hegel did it, but also depending on your denomination, there's someone that has. Yes. But love is not about a cumulative thing. It's about a contextual thing and because it's it's nested in relationships. For me, like the, a process relational view insists that some of our errors in the Christian tradition have been because we really desired to have a finality in things that God has desired to have relationality at the heart of. 
and it was seeing it in the life of Jesus and in the disciples and things that to me is where I made the connection first to process thinking uh, and, and realize that we had these ideas about what perfection and God and stuff looked like. And then if you just were me, a Baptist preacher's kid that read the Bible all the time, you're like, what? But but Jesus said, but in the scriptures it says, right? Like you yes. come up with these contexts. You started by saying that the way that the Christian religion, and this would be true of other communities too, but the, we use the Bible and even Christian history to justify where we are. In other words, we're, we're very susceptible to just using our past to justify where we are. And then we even do that as individuals. We, as individuals, we, we read everything. This is relevant to this podcast because the first two seasons we talked about biases. So in a sense, we look at everything in the past with the, the bias of confirming what we already think and confirming how we already do things. But this different approach says, no, the goal is not to justify where we are. The, the goal is to see our current context and then ask, what's the most loving way we can be in the world and respond to this context? And that always, uh, that always involves seeing the world in a, in, in a way that the world is changing. It's in process. So a, a lot of people, I'm going to guess, who are part uh, eavesdropping on this conversation, they've never heard the term process philosophy, process theology. I think that this, if we could help them understand this way of looking at the world as a world in process, it could help them look at Christianity in a different way. Um, so I wonder if you could maybe give us a little introduction. If you want, you could mention people like Alfred North Whitehead and John Cobb and others, or you don't even have to. But how would you help people see there's this common way of looking at the world that doesn't involve seeing the world in process versus a way that does? I'll tell it autobiographically. Like for me, the big question that uh, blew up the inherited structures of my faith in college were three different things, and they all sent me running in some sense to finding uh, a, a viable response. Uh, one was after 9-11. The religious response was so ugly. Um, you had the, the biggest protest in the world at that time was against the, the invasion in Iraq. All the leaders of the major uh, governments that are leading the invasion are people of faith who actually attend regularly their congregation. And a world protesting against who are baptized into the body of the one that said, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemies, uh, lead it. And after that, the Islamophobia and that kind of stuff after it was just gross. Throw in, well, then we learn about torture and uh, lying to get us into war. You take that, my personal experience with evil and suffering with uh, loved ones that all had multiple family members get cancer and some die of cancer relatively quickly, right as I was a minister for the first time and got the emergency calls where you show up in the hospital room. And so many of the things I learned as a good uh, Calvinist uh, sounded like the least Jesus-y answers, right? Like this is the will of God or the cheesy pious ones. And the other big issue was I was a nerd. I was really into science and philosophy. And I wanted answers that were reasonable and made sense with the best we know in the world. So I, I'm sitting there as a student wrestling with those different uh, visions. And I, I had a professor in a philosophy of religion class assign us Thomas Aquinas. I mean, <laughs> big guy, uh, the theologian in the Catholic Church, 
Aristotelian philosophically, and I'm reading his book, and I'm just like, this is, seems wrong. Uh, have you read in the Bible, you know, God changes God's mind. God grieves and suffers, has joy. Uh, and Aquinas is like, eh, it sounds like that, but not really. Because divine perfection means God doesn't change. God has all the power and, and this kind of thing. I was conflicted there and I raised the question. My professor's like, Trip, that's process philosophy. It's not compatible with Christianity. And I did what any um, angst-filled 19-year-old uh, does. They go to the library if you're a nerd just <laughs> to realize what this prohibited thing was. Mm. And I get to the library. I check out some books. I go home, read all weekend, ready to go in armed for bear because nothing sounds more fun than uh, arguing in philosophy class uh, if you are an Enneagram 8 and uh, know the other person's wrong. Now you just got to figure out why, <laughs> right? And so that weekend, I'm reading through Charles Hartshorn's Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes and then uh, read Process and Reality, a book I still kind of understand, but the very end of it, there's this book that wrote it. Uh, he was an atheist uh, and came back into believing in something like God because of the changes in science at the turn of the century kind of relativity, quantum physics, our ongoing understanding of, of evolution. There's a lot of reasons and people are interested. They could just search on my website and they'll find plenty. But he came back into believing in God, but the vision of God was really distinct uh, for him than the dominant visions. And at the end of the book, he gives us poetic flourish about it. Now, when I read that, I said to myself, I think he's right because there are Christians who are thinking they're being faithful by attacking and demonizing another religion, lying to go invade and ignoring the calls across the world for a peaceful resolution, or maybe even just an equitable response to a terrorist attack. Then I'm thinking of sitting there watching someone suffer and go, you cannot tell me God's at least as nice and loving as Jesus and thinks it's in God's divine will to torture my grandmother, to have parents lose a child in a car wreck and her angel, like all those kinds of things. I'm like, this makes no sense. And then I'm sitting there in class being told, well, I know the Bible says this, but if you understand real philosophy, then this is not true. God's really omnipotent or God's really, you know, yes. all these kind of yes. things. And so Whitehead's picture there is to go, what if the image of God isn't, uh, and if you read the whole passage, it goes, what if it's not God is the giant moral lawgiver or God's not the giant judge of all things or not God's not the perfect being principle? What if the divine is much more what like what you see in Jesus? And when I thought of that as someone that I was a sword drill champ, Brian, <laughs> I, mean, I, I used to be able to quote the Bible to humiliate people on behalf of invitations to the <laughs> to God. And when you start running through through scriptures, you realize that there is an ongoing battle about who God is in it. Is God really the king, the ruler? Is God really first the judge and lawgiver? Is God really the principle of all things? And what does it look like? And in the Hebrew scriptures, one of the other images is what? God is parent and God is lover. And in Jesus when you learn to pray, you pray, Abba. And like you're baptized into what? A kingdom, but who is king? Abba. 
And when Abba is judge, we're being adopted into the divine family. When Abba is, it's not like our trial, right, for murder. And when Abba is king, you find that all of us image bearers inherit the divine life. Like, so like to me, that passage like sparked off, what if what Jesus said, did, endured, actually revealed the heartbeat of the divine? Then how would we have to look back and go, did Caesar conquer our vision of God and then tell us what this story really meant was what the one that builds crosses and that not that the divine is much more like the one that bears crosses, suffers with us, offers hope out of injustice and that kind of thing. And obviously the ramifications of that are incredibly far reaching and incredibly relevant to our world today. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. It comes back to this idea of confirmation bias, that that we have an image of a dictatorial uh, dominating ruler who protects us and threatens them. And so that becomes our image of God, right? But we, we sync them up somehow. And then to say, no, actually what was at the heart of, of Jesus and the original Christian message and the, the germ of this whole thing was to challenge that and to think of God in different ways. And And this is such a tendency, isn't it, to take a metaphor and kind of absolutize it, to make that metaphor be literal, no longer a metaphor, but literal. And so there's this need to back away from that and let things move again. Let us see that our understanding of God is, uh, and and life and why we're here and all the rest to to be put into motion. So you have been, and, and this makes sense of why, Uh, over these last 14 years, you've been having conversations with the greatest living theologians and philosophers to have conversations to open up possibilities for us to move forward in different ways. And those of us who identify as Christian, whether Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, whatever, for us to say, hey, this thing isn't hardened cement, that it can have a different future than its present and past, and that there are new possibilities opening up. Let me make this a little bit personal. I'm just thinking how you've been doing this for 14 years, having these conversations. How has it affected you in your own kind of your own inner life and development? Talk to me about that. Cause not, I'd venture to say there's not a single person on earth who's had as many deep conversations with as many uh, frontline theologians as, as you've had. <laughs> At this point, I've like over 
1,300 episodes between all the uh, different podcasts. And then, you know, we do these uh, classes like you and I did. So, and, and some of them are with one other scholar that's a specialist, like in Kierkegaard or Bonhoeffer or James Cohn. And those are like super deep, not even just conversations, but with a specialist and we're reading their texts, right? So there are two things that come to mind about having done it, like macro observations. Uh, one is most of the re- intellectual reasons people give for like not believing in God or, or that kind of stuff, there are really, really good answers to them if that keeps you, if that's the reason that keeps you. And there are multiple good answers that can be, yeah, that can cohere deeply with contemporary science, that can uh, respond to the questions around uh, pluralism in all sorts of different ways, address questions of violence. Like there are really beautiful, faithful responses, and there, there's a multiplicity of them, right? And so, like, out of that, I have started to see the faith as less like getting to the most beautiful, final, good answer. But my job is cultivating an ecosystem of beautiful answers and trying to feature beautiful representatives from different traditions. Like I am like as far from it gets as it gets from being like a reformed thinker. But I interview quite a few of them. And I'm like, if you're going to be one, then like have you met my friend Oliver Crisp? He's like a Calvinist and he's evangelical. And like I would never go there. But if I'm going to, he gives this beautiful account. He actually wrestles with the questions that made me leave it behind, right? And one of my favorite uh, thinkers is in the book uh, that you read earlier, Joseph Bracken. He's a Jesuit, but so is Roger Haight, who's a Jesuit. They have very different visions of the faith, the task for the theologian, how uh, you understand Christ in relationship to a pluralistic context. And yet both of their answers are beautiful and life-giving. And so the big picture for me is, there really are. There's not like an, a lack of intellectual resources in the church to address these. Uh, I feel like they get stuck up in the academy, and then if you just think of what ministers are dealing with at this point, they they have to do way more with way less uh, because of the changes in the church. So it's hard to find the resources and connect people and such. So there's like that side. Uh, the other big takeaway from having done it this long is faith looks really, really different depending on the kind of questions you carry. Mm. Any scholar, I mean, you have to do the things the Academy does, right? So if people read Divine Self-Investment, unlike the first Jesus book, which is much more personal, you don't know all my stories that are animating it, but they're real specific ones. But there's a whole thing you do in the Academy. But the more I've gotten to know scholars who uh, have wrestled with some particular thing, uh, so often it comes from the fact that they had a big question. They either energized them or, or perplexed them, or it was connected to pain and harm and struggle, and they refuse to drop the question. And so they're going to pursue it. And I find that to be real exhilarating because a lot of people today have questions and challenges, and then they don't end up with communities and traditions that help them think about it in wise ways. And I think one of the the gifts of a religious tradition, and for me, Christianity, is that it is a wisdom tradition that has been thinking with stories and symbols and signs and rituals and practices about what it means to be human and what it means to move towards goodness and justice and beauty and that kind of thing. 
And so often when you have big questions, but you don't have the stories, narrative and tribe to wrestle with it, then it's easy for your soul to get battered down and to feel isolated and alone. Uh, and the getting to encounter so many gifted scholars of the tradition uh, that I'm a part of. And then, I mean, if you listen, there are plenty of times people from other traditions or philosophers that don't have religious commitments or scientists and stuff. But uh, I have started to have deep resonance with people that take the questions that humans ask uh, seriously. I started having to identify with them deeply and think it is too easy in our culture to uh, set aside uh, questions that demand wrestling and attention and then move on to simulating having deep values and commitments. And a, a religious tradition, not just Christianity, are communities that kind of have that wisdom. And they've, they've survived and thrived because they intuit in all the things uh, that they're doing uh, ways of, be, of living a more full life. I think it's cool uh, to, in some way, I feel like like I hit the lottery to start a theology podcast early enough that it's got to stick around and you get to hear what is it like for brilliant people to take um, a tradition seriously, questions seriously, and the best knowledge we have seriously. And then what does it sound like when they wrestle and are honest? As you were explaining that, trip, I, I kept thinking that... You know, when I try to teach about the contemplative mind, one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm struggling to try to help people see and grapple with is something that was implicit in everything you just said. And let me see if I can articulate it. A, a lot of us grew up with the idea that our religion was supposed to give us all the right answers that show our right answers show how everybody else is wrong we've got the truth contained in our systematic theology and so on. And when we become disillusioned with that, when some of our answers stop working, like for you after September 11th or in the face of deep human suffering or grappling with philosophical questions where the answers were not satisfactory, what we do then is we throw out that old set of answers and we try to find the new set of answers that we can be equally certain about. But what you described is coming to a different place where you're able to see, how did you say it? Like a whole repertoire of answers. Like here's a whole bunch of beautiful answers to these questions. And it's not like I've seized on, this is the only right one, but I, I'm living with some sense of, this is a really important question. And here's a bunch of ways that people are grappling with it. And I'm glad to have a whole bunch of them. And I'm not seizing on one to vanquish all the others. That to me is a, it's a way of holding knowing and unknowing together. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Two things pop to mind when you say that. One is any declarative account of something is equally revelatory as it is hiding, right? Anytime we give an account of something, part of what it does is what it conceals and what it reveals and recognizing that that's what happens in symbolic communication. I think means we have a different task when it comes to talking about something that's even more mysterious than self-understanding or an account of your best <laughs> friend or lover or partner, right? Like yes. human beings, we don't understand. We're not, we're not clear to who we are as ourselves, And yet we relate to ourselves. We have to figure it out. And my, I, 
Alicia and I have been married uh, almost 20 years now, and I still, she's a mystery. right? And so part of uh, recognizing the this kind of shift in how you view accounts of anything, be it a person or a tradition or the truth or God or Jesus or anything, is realizing that each of them reveals something. It's putting something forward, but it also conceals something. And when we look back at our history, we can notice times, right? Like when I spend a lot of time reading Luther, when I did my qualifying exam on him, I read way more than I'll probably ever read again. Uh, But one of the things I came to recognize was that in his context, in his situation, what was being concealed in the life of his parishioners was that the God that made them and knows them completely, loves them completely, and they were anxious, wondering whether they were the beloved of God. And out of that, you get the early Martin Luther and this fire that's both criticizing uh, the tradition and offering this picture of grace. Now, are there things that were concealed in his insistence on this? Yes, anti-Semitism being one of them, his inability to recognize in the peasant wars what was going on in the present, but also that tradition itself realized that there were things that were concealed in it. Luther, for a long time, said that God was so mysterious, we don't know what's on the divine backside. We know that God of love has reached out, but what is in the mystery of God? What's in the, he, and he, you know, I, he says, Deus absconditus, the mystery of God. And he would go, we can't know. Now, Lutheran tradition later realized, now we're creating a whole nother context where people then want to know whether they are known and loved completely mm-hmm. by God. Mm-hmm. And what happens? You have a number of different parts of the Lutheran tradition recognize something. What is the mystery of God? The mystery of God is the infinite God of love. And so God remains a mystery, but it's a mystery that coheres with the one who's identified with us, is always before us and for us. Then you have to go like, then what happens with that? It gets received again by liberation theologians in the Lutheran tradition. And then wants to insist what? That the individual's, at bearing the divine image are always in the context of infinite love, but what love looks like worked out in material reality is not always affirmation and blessing when your material existence is entangled in violence and oppression, right? So like, that's just one idea. And each time when you look at the context, I want to look back and go, hell yeah, Luther, if you meet someone that's anxious, that wants to know whether the God revealed in Christ knows and loves them, then you, you update that theology. And then you want to go, like, you're wondering whether the mystery of God's against you? Thank you for updating uh, how that doctrine works, because it concealed things that were ugly. And then Westerners in dominant context are proclaiming the universal love of God, and then people in that same tradition who are economically exploited by the West go, hey, have we thought about contextualizing this a bit? And then we learn again. And so that activity So often, if we see the tradition just as cumulative getting to perfection, then we miss the point. If we see it, that in each context, what is being demanded from us that we can muster in our lips and in our living, then like that's what theology is up to. And I could I could pick a different tradition because I'm not even Lutheran, but you know I I fell in love with Luther, Uh, Anselm and penal substitutionary atonement and that whole story. There are beautiful things through the whole thing, and I would not be interested in any of it at this point. So the, like, I feel like when you get to know the, the context in these figures and leaders through the church and the communities they were serving, what seems like an ugly thing to repeat today could be heard as beautiful truth in that moment. And that means we can relate to it differently. And I, it doesn't mean I want anyone to sound like they're from Geneva today. And that was a Calvin joke for those uh, that don't know that. But that, but that's different than going, Calvin was a brilliant reformer who 
revealed things that in his time and context were liberating and life-giving. And it also concealed things that in other contexts, say South Africa in apartheid, concealed the way the same notion of spheres of influence and sovereignty gets worked out. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I'll tell you, that is, a, I think, a very fitting place to draw this conversation to a close because uh, it reminds me of a, a, a little saying uh, that uh, sort of dawned on me, I think, back when I was in graduate school. And, and here it is. Today's solutions create tomorrow's problems. <laughs> and then tomorrow's problems invite new solutions, which will create the next day's problems. And, and, and in that sense, so... Anselm or Luther or Aquinas or Calvin, we can look back and say they were trying to solve a problem in their day and they did their best to solve it in a beautiful way. And then that ended up creating new problems in another context, which meant that the faith kept needed to keep growing. I think if we, if people can receive that as a gift, that the Christian faith is not a set of answers and solutions. It's a bunch of problem solving that keeps opening up new contexts, which then leaves us with a question that we won't answer, but maybe we'll leave as a gift to everyone. And that is, what are the problems we're trying to solve today? And how are our solutions going to be problems for future generations? And how does that change the way that we hold um, our identity as Christians and our faith as Christians. Does that ring true? And any final thoughts on that trip? Yeah. Honestly, that's one of the reasons I really love the your, your new book, Do I Stay Christian? Is because it recognizes there are really good reasons to leave. And there are some really exciting invitations if you stay. And I think that a lot of people, because of the rather narrow authoritarian context, they experience faith. That then when they have these stirrings on behalf of justice or inclusion or advocacy and things like that, or intellectual ones around engaging, you know, say other religious traditions or the sciences or stuff, and they have all these things animating and energizing them, and then they're told by the, the toxic system they're in, that puts you outside our tent. And it mm -hmm. also means you should leave the community of Jesus followers. I think that there are plenty of people who experience that kind of uncomfortability and frustration and anger and animation uh, to to their faith that they could be allies with the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit in their yes. context. And that one of the greatest gifts the church gets are people who refuse to leave when they got really good reasons because they're staying on behalf of where we'll be in the next generation and the next generation. And it's so many of the people I've connected with recently that I, I'm like, you've got to get Brian's new book when it comes out, are ones who have really good reasons to leave. And the reason they're leaving is a passion that so connects to my experience with the divine and with Christ that I'm like, oh, we, I want there to be space for you. I want to be invested in whatever ways I can in making the church make space for people that are so committed to something so beautiful and true from my perspective that we need those voices. Uh, and sometimes that that tension and the pushback you get in a religious context is really uh, the affirmation uh, that you're listening. And that call, you know, for process people, like every moment, God comes to the moment and there's allures, the fun word. Uh, but like, what is available to you at any moment is not everything. 
It's whatever you can do in that moment. And you're receiving the past and it shapes what's possible. But all the possibilities, some are better and worse than others. Some are more beautiful and justice filled. And I think one of the gifts of the process vision for this moment is you're only responsible for what you can actually contribute in the next moment. You don't have to fix all the huge issues and understand all the big problems. In each moment, you're invited uh, to say and do and cooperate and participate with uh, the invitations of love that are there. And when we do that, then the next moment, it increases the potential because we've sown seeds of response to the divine lure of love. I find that to help me stay patient in situations where I ask the same questions you're asking in the book. Because if sometimes I feel responsible for things I can't do anything to. I'm not responsible for the whole church, but I feel like it sometimes. I'm not responsible for American democracy, but I feel like it sometimes. And uh, one of the gifts of a process vision is to go like, what are you responsible to? And then what are you responsible for? You're responsible to all the communities and peoples and relations that you're related to, but you're responsible for your own agency. And so you ask yourself in that agency, how can I cooperate with the divine? And that helps me get stay centered and in investing in places with my relational uh, energy where I think I'm contributing to something beautiful. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'd like to leave you with this short passage from my book, Do I Stay Christian? Most of us woke up this morning in a universe that was not at its best at the beginning, nor is it at its best now. It is en route, becoming, in process, always presented with a possibility of evolving into something more beautiful, diverse, alive, and conscious, or stagnating and decaying toward extinction. We do not know what the universe can become, given enough time and enough opportunity, aided by our own faith, hope, courage, and love. If the Christian faith is to have a creative and constructive future, it will have to undergo its own metamorphosis. I want to offer a special thanks to Trip Fuller for being our guest and conversation partner in today's episode. I would like to thank the staff, faculty, and board of the Center for Action and Contemplation for all they do to help spread skills we need to be more just and compassionate human beings. And a special thanks to Corey Pig, the producer of this program, who is such a joy to work with. And thanks to you for listening and for sharing this podcast with others.
Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.